I don't always get a chance to say thanks um, to everybody, but to make Sunday morning happening, we have a lot of people volunteering. Everything from hospitality, the tech team, which makes everything make sense and flow, the worship team, which most visible, but we have people in the nursery, we have greeters, we have security, we have lots and lots of people. We have children's church happening downstairs, a lot of things that are happening. So if you can take notice of that, first of all, I want to thank all of you who are engaged in all of these things, but take note of it and say thank you uh, to some of, some of those people as you see them, uh, because uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of people involved so that we can come and worship and enjoy fellowship and food and, and all kinds of things. So just wanted to say that this morning. Three weeks ago, we were with the Israelites as they experienced an incredible win. It was the victory of crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and the destruction of the entire Egyptian army that was hot in pursuit. Last Sunday, we looked at the celebration that followed that event. It's like the after-game celebration or the, the party that centered on a song with the theme, Who is like you, God? They had this incredible victory. They said, Who is like you, God? A song that celebrated who God is, what God had done, and we personalized it by saying, God is my, and you fill in the blank. While the law of physics or the law of God says what goes up must come down, okay? The Israelites move on from this great victory down to reality. It's reality. From triumph to trouble, from faith to unbelief, all in three days. <laughs> you got to be kidding in three days, yes. And as we move on to the next section of the book of Exodus, I think we're going to all find much that we can identify with. Going from triumph to testing. Today we're going to look at testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. We're going to look at three tests and two responses. Three tests and two responses. We're not going to read the whole text. We're going to read three sections out of this text from Exodus 15 through 17. It's on page 57 in the Bible in the rack in front of you if you want to follow. Uh, we're going to start with test number one in Exodus 15, starting with verse 22. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instructed for them and put them instruction for them and put them to the test. What was the first test that they experienced after this great victory? It was thirst. <laughs> we, we all experience thirst, especially on hot days like we're experiencing now. Thirst, and this, this thirst could be called bitter circumstances. Thirst or bitter circumstances. They had traveled for three days in the desert, and their thirst is overwhelming. And then they find water, but what happens? It's undrinkable. They find water, but it's undrinkable. It's unpalatable. It's bitter. It's 
worthless. So the first test they had was thirst. Thirst. Then we get to verse 16, chapter 16, 1 through 4. And it says, this is the second test. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The second test was hunger. Hunger or physical, physical need. They didn't have enough food or meat in particular. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked this question. I wondered about, you know, these Israelites leave and they have all this livestock. They have, they have, the, uh, they have cattle and they have sheep. And I thought, if you have all this cattle and sheep, why don't you just stop and have some steak and lamb chops? You know, I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Why didn't they just eat the meat that they had? Well, Alan Cole writes this. He said, the breeders of livestock were loath to slaughter their own beasts, which is their only alternative to a diet of milk and cheese in the desert. They were not going to slaughter their livestock for a temporary fix of meat, wanting meat. But they experienced physical need, which was hunger. They were hungry. Then we get to the third test in chapter 17, 1 to 3. This again, it has to do with water. It says the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Again, okay? So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? This was the third test, which was thirst, which was, this was danger of death. They didn't find water. They were going to die. No question. This time, there was no water at all, not even bitter water. Now, these three tests were to challenge the Israelites' trust in God. Three tests. And remember, it was still God who was leading them through the wilderness. Okay? God is leading them, and he tests them coming through the wilderness. So what can we learn from these tests? How does God lead us? I'm going to look at five lessons of tests first. Probably not all the lessons we can learn. There's a lot here, but I want to just look at five lessons from the tests. Number one, in our times of testing, we all experience bitter circumstances. All of us experience bitter circumstances. We can identify with what they've experienced. The people looked at water from a distance. It looked good, but when they tasted it, it was bitter. It was un, undrinkable. It was, it was worthless. They couldn't do anything with it. And I don't know if you have or you are in the middle of bitter circumstances. Maybe it's a relationship that looked good to you, but it turned out sour and left you bitter. Maybe it's a job that looked good, but it turned out poorly. 
Maybe it was injustice. You were treated unfairly or swindled, or maybe you were falsely accused. Bitter, bitter circumstances. Maybe a, a friend gossiped about you and ruined your reputation. Maybe you married and it didn't work out. Maybe you made a financial investment and went sideways. Maybe you bought a car and it was a lemon, or you bought a, a house and it had termites. <laughs> Life, it looks good from a distance, but when you actually tasted it, it's bitter. And we all experience bitter circumstances as people group, as, as family, as individuals. And it's a test. Do we turn to God in trust in the middle of these circumstances? Secondly, we all experience needs. We all experience needs. It could be physical needs like here. They were looking for meat. They were looking for water, some kind of physical need. It might be a financial need. It might be unexpected bills. You go to the dentist, have your teeth cleaned, and end up with a $5,000 root canal. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I had a sister-in-law that that happened to her. Maybe your property taxes jumped. Maybe gas doubles. It actually did. Okay, just, just say it. Maybe it's a hospital bill or a health need. Dollars stretch only so far, and then they rip. You know how that goes. Maybe it's an emotional need, need for friendship or companionship. Maybe you're in the middle of a desert like these guys are, and you feel like you're friendless without food or water. There's nobody close enough to talk to. There's nobody that you really trust. Maybe it's a spiritual need. Maybe you feel like you're literally in the desert with no food, no water, and you're alone starving to death spiritually. It's a test test. Also, number three, in times of testing, we discover all tests are different. All tests are different. Israel had three tests, and every one of them was different. I don't know if you ever feel like you just figured out how to deal with this test, and God gives you another one. Am I alone? Just feel, I just figured it out, and I got to throw something else at me. What is this? God, I figured out the answers. Don't give me a different test. Of course, we find in school, we don't take the same test over and over again, unless you flunked it. But I discovered if you flunked the test, if you take the read test, they always have different questions. So it doesn't, doesn't work that well. But if we flunked it the first time, we always take new tests. And God always gives us new tests or new challenges. All the tests are different. Fourth, in our times of testing, breaks don't last very long. Breaks don't last very long. In 1527, there's one verse, just one verse, and through all this thing, it says they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Nice break. But there's only one verse devoted to Elam. It's an oasis, we, and we would like to live and stay in the oasis. There's 12 springs of water, 70 date palms. And now and again in our lives, we get to rest in Elam. We like those times. We'd like to stay there is what we'd like to do. But then God moves us on again. We say, God, can I, can I just stay here? I'm comfortable. This is good. This is whatever. God says, uh, you've got to move. We're going to be studying the life of Israelites. We'll be studying the life of the followers of Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ they march and they camp. They march and they camp. 
and they march, and they camp. And, and some people like to march. They like to move. They like to get going. Other people, I just like to camp. Let me just stay here for a while. But God doesn't allow us to camp too long. That's something I've discovered. Our spiritual journey, in our spiritual journey, we have no choice. God always do, moves us forward. Now, we do get breaks from testing, but they don't always last very long. And all of us, if, if you were to share today what your life is like, you're either coming out of a test, going into a test, or you're in the middle of a test. Isn't that true? Either coming out, going in, or in the middle of a test. An old preacher said it this way. He said, when God shuts a door, he always opens a window. But it can be hell in the hallway. Sorry, I used that word. I was in the the sauna at the the, uh, health club the other, a couple years ago. And these, these guys... They don't know what I do for a living. I don't tell anybody what I do for a living. And they were using salty language, and, and they were talking to each other. Finally, one guy turned to me and said, so what, what kind of work do you do? <laughs> I said, um, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh. And you could see everybody just kind of stopped, E.F. Hunting, quiet moment. And then the guy said, well, I'm sorry I used the word hell. Then he said, but you probably use that a lot too, don't you? <laughs> Okay, that's neither here nor there. Well, the breaks in our journey don't last very long because God wants to continue our character development. We say, God, isn't my character good enough now? I need a break. Number five, tests often come after great victories. Tests often come after great victories. These three tests came after the great victory of crossing the Red Sea. But I, I guess I'm just a little smarter than a few years ago. Just, just a little. I try to remember to keep my eyes open after a really good win. You know, you have a great week or you have a great win. Great things happen. And, yeah, there's a challenge around the corner. And now I just kind of expect something to happen. It's not negative thinking. It's just I know something's going to happen. And I think I enjoy the elims or the breaks a little bit more. So we got three tests and five lessons. And I think if you're human and breathing today, you probably can identify with these Israelites that were in the middle of these things. Now, let's look at two responses. Two responses. How did the Israelites respond to these tests? And how do we respond to these tests? How do we react and respond? The first response we see is unbelief. Unbelief, which was demonstrated by grumbling. Demonstrated by grumbling. By their reaction, the Israelites show their true nature by their response to testing. And their first response in every case was grumbling. I said this a couple weeks ago. How do you know they were grumbling? Because their lips were moving. They were grumbling. Now, don't be too hard on the Israelites. He who is without this sin can cast the first stone. Okay? We all grumble. Grumbling, complaining, and murmuring. Now, I want to make five observations about grumbling. First one, number one, is grumbling is a result of unbelief. Grumbling is a result of unbelief. Unbelief has a short memory. It perverts our perspective. It forgets the great power of God in the past. And unbelief is the direct opposite 
of faith. The Hebrews started to wish for the pots of meat and the all-you-can-eat buffets of Egypt. Egypt was paradise, right? Well, not, not exactly. Not exactly. But they tried to remember what it was like. Maxie Dunham writes, If you want a picture of the Israelites, you will find it in the Scripture's continuous reference to their murmurings. They were constantly complaining. Their faith was shallow. Their trust was superficial. They were selfish. Their stomachs prevailing over their minds and hearts. Grumbling, the result of unbelief. Secondly, grumbling is primarily against God. It's primarily against God. Exodus 16, 18, Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. We may think we're complaining about our boss or about our job or about our husband or wife or children or church leadership or pastor or financial circumstance or bitter circumstances or government leaders. We, if we grumble and complain, we're actually grumbling against God. Number three, grumbling always focuses on the negative. On the negative. It colors our entire perspective. We begin to look at all the negative things in life, and then it puts everything else in a negative light. It, it, it just makes everything look bad. Number four, grumbling is contagious. Grumbling is contagious. In James 3, it talks about the contagiousness of what we say. Verse 3 of James 3 says, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue, this is about the tongue, is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Grumbling spreads like forest fire. And it draws people around us who are also negative or, or grumbling. It, it, it revels in bad news. It looks for bad news. It's predisposed to bad news. Grumbling is gossip-friendly. It's gossip-friendly. And we are doing ministry in Washington. I preached one Sunday on James 3, which is this passage. did an extensive exposition of James 3. And the next week, I received a strongly worded letter from a man in our congregation who accused me of writing the sermon and preaching it at he and his wife. Evidently, they had been grumbling and complaining and gossiping. I didn't know, okay? I didn't know. But he was so angry with me that I preached that sermon against them, they left the church. I'm serious. I never saw them again. It was, it was amazing to me. I didn't know who was grumbling. I didn't know who was gossiping. It was the word of God by the Holy Spirit that convicted that couple. And by the way, I have no knowledge of anyone here who's grumbling or gossiping. So just so you know, I don't know. 
But if you are, deal with it. And please, don't leave the church. Just saying. Just saying. Grumbling is contagious. Number five, grumbling blocks the positive. Grumbling blocks the positive. Grumbling, because of its focus on the negative, totally eclipses the positive. You can't see the good because the bad is so huge. How many people have here have seen a solar eclipse? Partial or total? Anybody seen a total one? Okay, yeah, some of you. It's pretty amazing. This, this, this bright sun can be totally blocked out by the moon. And just as the moon blocks the light of the sun, so grumbling or negativism blocks or eclipses the positive or the good. Blocks the positive or the good. You can always find something bad or or negative. But grumbling blocks all the positive that God wants to do. Grumbling has its roots in unbelief. It blocks God's power. Unbelief is so devastating because it's the opposite of faith. We walk by faith. Faith releases God's power. Unbelief can stop God's power. The Israelites lived in unbelief, and the tests reveal that fact. And out of the tests, under the pressure of tests, came grumbling. I've used this illustration before. When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out of the lemon? Some people say lemon juice. That could be true. But when you squeeze lemon, whatever's inside comes out. Whatever's inside is going to come out of that lemon. Tests. Squeeze us, put us under pressure. When we get squeezed, what what comes out? (laughs) Whatever's inside, whatever's inside of us is going to come out. That pressure of a test comes out. So how do we counter grumbling? How How do we get over that? Our media, news, blogs, culture is so negative. How can we stop it? I want to I want to just talk about four measures to counter grumbling. Four measures. Number one, point out the, the positive. Point out the positive. The best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. Several years ago, there was this huge controversy surrounding the University of Washington football program. They had just gotten a new coach. And the Seattle Times was reporting and publishing emails that were sent to the university president and athletic director regarding the new coach. They didn't like the new coach. Okay? One man, believe it, believe it or not, this is documented, offered a $200,000 donation to the University of Washington Law School if they would fire the athletic director and the coach. Seriously. It, it was a huge deal in Seattle. It was boiling over. There's all this negative publicity. When Jeff Kemp, Jeff Kemp was a former Seahawk quarterback back in the day, outstanding Christian, great Christian in the community, And he started to counter the negative with a positive. He wrote this. This man has changed lives and the reputation of the University of Washington football player culture. He is building a foundation and a winning will result. He saw the positive in this new coach, pointed out the positive. I mean, people were sending emails saying, the Huskies are losing and it's ruining my life. Seriously? What kind of life do you have? That's, it's all your life is? It, is somebody else playing football? Yeah. They, they took it so personally. It was a huge deal. 
get alive. During that time also, some of you may remember Sean Alexander. He was a Seahawk running back, great Christian man. And he wrote this. He said, quote, I want to tell you how pleased I am with the direction of the program and the character of the, of the, of the guy's coach is bringing in. He has set the table for this to happen, holding character above other things. Let him finish what he started and you'll be pleased with your decisions. So all this negative and two, two positives just blew it out of the water. It took just two positives to counter all that negative, pointing out the positive. And you know what? When I'm hit with negative, 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 I just want to hit back with positive, positive, positive. People who love grumbling and gossip hate it when you don't agree with them. <laughs> I can say that. They want to stay in the negative time. A good dose of positive pours cold water on a grumbler. How do we counter grumbling? Number two, refuse to participate. Refuse to participate. Misery loves company. And the Israelites loved being miserable together. <laughs> they loved being miserable together. We can stop the chain reaction of negativism and grumbling and gossip simply by refusing to participate. Proverbs 26.20 says this, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. And we can stop gossip in two places. Two places. In our ears, hearing, or in our mouth, speaking. In the ears, out the mouth. When we refuse to participate in grumbling, we'll discover people probably don't seek you out to complain to you anymore. On the other hand, if people are always seeking you out to complain to you, you better examine yourself. Ask why. Am I encouraging grumbling or discouraging? We have as a value statement, this is in our, on our website, um, has to do with, with gossip and, and grumbling. It's called, one of the value statements has to do with, is titled, Loyalty to the Absent. Loyalty to the Absent. And it reads this. As followers of Jesus Christ, living his mandate to first love God, then to love others as ourselves, we express that love by refraining from gossip, pledging to speak to others directly, speak well of, or not speak at all. We will stop gossip at both our own mouth and own ears by calling others into account to stop. Huge values. It's number seven in our value statements. You want to see it, go on our website, what we believe. Very important. Number three, how do we counter grumbling? Uh, quote the word of God. People love it when you do that. <laughs> it's quote the word of God. Verses like Philippians 4.4. 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. Philippians 4.6-8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Wow. That is hard. <laughs> it's really hard to follow that verse, thinking about the positives. 
Quoting these passages will help put grumblers out of business. Number four, pray for the grumblers. Pray for them. People grumble for a reason. They may be trapped, trapped in a cycle of negativism. Life has been tough. Maybe they can't spiritually discern, and they need prayer. So pray. If somebody's caught up in negativism and grumbling, gossip, then pray for them. So the first response to tests is what most of us tend to do. That's unbelief. Unbelief. Resulting in grumbling. Now, and faith is the opposite of unbelief. So let's look at the second response possible to these tests. We're going to have tests. They're going to come at different times. What is the second response that we see? Faith. Faith. These tests, like all of our tests, were to see if Israel would trust and obey God. Realizing again, God is leading them. Just like God is leading you. They didn't see they didn't see the, the logic of the path. They didn't, see the, they didn't see any of that stuff. But they were following God. And if God is leading you, truly leading you, then our response is one of faith. These tests, like all their tests, were to see if Israel would trust and obey God. We live by faith, not by sight. Faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. Of what we cannot see. If you can see it, it doesn't require faith. If you already possess it, you don't need faith. This is certain of what you cannot see. Certain of what you do not yet possess. So what can we learn here? Number one, faith is a result of belief. Faith is the result of belief. Faith has to have an object. It's not just faith and faith. Faith has to have an object. It's not just, just amorphous, whatever. It's faith has to have an object. If, you, if you're going to come and you're going to sit in that chair, um, you look at that and you say, okay, that's sturdy. It was built by professionals, I think. Looks comfortable. And I'm going to sit down believing that it'll hold me. So I go and I sit down in the chair. My faith wasn't some kind of weird amorphous belief. It was actually faith in the chair. Our faith has to have a belief. Our faith ha- isn't in this just this uh, amorphous God. It's a, in the person of God. Our faith has as its focus and object God. God. And the question is, can you believe? Can you believe during tough times? Can you focus your faith on God. One writer said the big question is not whether we can sing in our triumph at the Red Sea. We talked about the song of Moses last week, singing at the triumph of the Red Sea, but whether we can sing in our troubles at Mara. The proof of faith, the testing, always comes in the barren desert at Mara, not at the oasis of Elam. Faith, the result of belief. And number two, faith primarily in God. Primarily in God. God is the object of faith. God is the object of faith. I've used this illustration before. I know we don't write checks very often. How many, do you guys still write checks? Some of you, some of you okay. I, sometimes you have to write a check. We use debit cards and stuff. But anyway, but, uh, let's say Vern goes to uh, the grocery store. He goes into Festival Foods, and, 
and he's going to write a check for the groceries. And so he's getting ready to write a check. And the, the, the person there knows that Vern knows him well. He's been shopping a long time. He's bounced the last 10 checks. Okay, This is hypothetical. Um, it's it, it just, they say, I'm not going to take Vern's check, okay, because it's going to bounce, okay, because I just don't know. Then you have Byron. Byron's been shopping at festival the same, he's never bounced a check. So he starts to write a check, and she doesn't even ask a question, he just takes the check. She knows it's good, okay. Now, is the difference that the grocery clerk has great faith? Doesn't have faith in Vern, but does in Byron? No, it's because Byron has great credibility. It's not her faith. Her faith is in the great credibility of Byron. It's not because she has some great faith. And our faith is not because we have great faith and we work it up. It's in God's track record, a track record that says, I can trust God. And it's in God's credibility. Our faith has to be in God who has great credibility. He's got a track record. So when we go to him, believing in him, it's not because we have great faith, it's because he has great credibility. Does that make sense? So when we trust God and have faith in him, it's because he's got the track record. God is the object of our faith. Number three, faith focuses on the positive. Faith focuses on the positive. Unbelief is negative, belief is positive. Number four, faith is contagious. Faith is contagious. Those of you that have, have played on a sports team knows that if your coach comes and says, well, uh, these guys are tough. I'm not sure we can, we can beat them, but uh, go out, do the best you can. As opposed to, we got this. We've got this. We're better than they are. We've worked hard. We've practiced. We've got this. Let's go. And faith, they, they rise up in faith and say, we can do this. Faith is contagious, and when we express faith in any circumstance, in family, in church, in personal life, in our marriage, faith is contagious, spreads like fire as well. Number five, faith promotes the positive, always looking at the positive. And faith, number six, releases God's power. Faith releases God's power. In spite of the grumbling people, Moses stood in for the people, exercised his faith, acted in obedience, and then God released his power. He made the bitter water drinkable at Merah. He sent manna, which is food from heaven, and then he gave them water from the rock at Horeb. We didn't look at that. Moses struck the rock and water came out. Gave them manna. Now, one final note on manna. We don't have time to go into the details of manna. But manna was a test of dependence. If you, when you look at the book of Exodus, basically, God gave the Israelites only their daily bread, what they needed for that day, or two days' worth on Friday to cover the Sabbath. I know we like to go stock up on groceries. You know, we'll go to places where we can stock up on groceries, get at least a a week or some things, a month's worth of whatever that is, because we want to have it, okay? And we'd be nervous if we didn't have it every day or if we didn't have that stocked up. I want to go to the fridge and find that we have enough of whatever we need. 
The Israelites for 40 years had to depend on God for food every single day. That had to be tough. Had to be tough. It taught them dependence on God. And in reality, God only gives us what we need today. Only gives us what we need today. No more and no less. Exodus 16, 5 says, The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. That's a whole other story, this manna, manna thing. I'm sure they had a lot of different recipes for manna. But manna bread, manna cake, manna cotti, you know, things like that. But that was... Sorry, that's not in my notes. It just came out of nowhere. Three tests. Two responses. I hope we can all learn from the Israelites. Testing. One, two, three. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us... You give us the real picture of what it was like for the Israelites to live... In the testing times, we saw the the glory times of the great victory of the Red Sea, and then now they're going through the desert, and it's tough. And Father, many people here today are in the middle of those tests. And I pray, God, that as we deal with those tests and challenges, that we would look at how you guided us, you guided them, you led them, and you gave them breaks, and, and you helped them be strong. And I just pray, Lord, today, that you would give us the strength to trust you and obey you. God, we just give you our hearts today. Let's stand, shall we?